Hello and welcome to another edition of Career Education Report. I am Jason Altmeyer, and we have a guest today who I think everyone's going to enjoy. We are thrilled to have Michael Itzkowitz. He is a senior fellow of higher education at Third Way, which is a think tank, which we will talk more about. And also, interestingly, he worked in the Department of Education for several years during President Obama's term. Most famously, he was the director of the College Scorecard, which we have all taken for granted now that it exists and we all use it and can scan it and, and sort data and compare institutions and look at outcomes. Of course, it didn't used to be that way. And Michael played a key role in getting that up and running. So we are going to talk about that as well. So I wanted to start, Michael. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Third Way. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I do work now as a senior fellow for Third Way, uh, where I focus on their completion and value agenda. So I've been doing a lot of work with them since 2016, after leaving the administration. And uh, essentially, you know, what we were noticing at the time, you know, this, this narrative of what has been really important in higher education has slowly began to shift. We were all super and rightfully uh, focused on college completion, you know, within five or 10 years ago, we know that there are so many correlations between students that complete and their ability to get good paying jobs and be able to pay down their loans. After working at the department and doing a lot of this work with data through the college scorecard, one of the things that we did notice is that while there is definitely a relationship between completion and good outcomes, we also started to notice that there were some institutions that were providing degrees to students, but ultimately weren't leaving them with decent paying jobs and also not the ability to pay down their loans. So my work has sort of shifted in terms of return on investment uh, from a consumer and a taxpayer perspective and kind of putting out information to help ensure that students are getting a good bang for their educational buck. So that's been some of the stuff I've been working on over the past few years. And Third Way started in the early 2000s. I think it's worth pointing out because, of course, there's different types of think tanks and different ideologies that go along with it. And the name Third Way means, in theory, that it is taking the third approach. You have the more liberal progressive side on one end and you have the more conservative Republican side on the other. And third way, as it was founded, was meant to kind of be a bridge and, and be a more thoughtful middle. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about, is that still the way that third way views itself? We are essentially, you know, a little bit left leaning, I think, when it comes to some policy areas but something that was super attractive to me is that we are able to work across both sides of the aisle, which, as you know, um, as a former congressperson, is so important and necessary to get a lot of policy things done in Congress. So something that's a little bit more advantageous about Third Way is we do look for practical approaches that are ultimately good for students, but also focusing on taxpayer dollars to make sure that they're used effectively and efficiently. So rather than some other places to where I could have found employment, I just found over the past few years, it's it's really been you know super advantageous to talk with folks on both sides of the aisle that are very reasonable and think about how we can actually get things done. Really working across the aisle is something that we focus on. And I think that we try to do as effectively as possible. Our audience are folks, of course, who pay 
attention acutely to higher education. Many of them are interested in issues related to the proprietary sector, but higher education more generally. Not all of them uh, of our listeners are active on social media, I would guess. But for those of you that are, I would highly recommend you follow Michael because he is really considered to be the guru of the college scorecard of data analysis. And he's come up with a return on investment metric that has gotten a lot of media coverage. And I wonder, Michael, if you could talk about uh, when you ran the data, why you did it with regard to looking at return on investment for students and for taxpayers, what you found and uh, where you foresee that going in the future. So one of the things that we hear about all the time, and we're going to continue to hear about, rightfully so, is that there is about $1.7 trillion in debt. And we hear a lot of these horror stories where students are entering programs. A lot of them aren't finishing the programs. Some of them do finish the programs, but they're ultimately just struggling to earn enough to be able to reasonably pay down this student debt over time. So we know that it's really been a consumer issue that's on everyone's mind, especially heating up over the past couple of years. And a lot of this, you know, we see that certain institutions and certain programs ultimately will lead students with a better chance to have a good ROI or return on investment. So I wanted to use the data that we've been putting out for years to figure out how can we best do this. I don't think that there's a complete right way to do this with any sort of metric, but we're really giving it our best shot. And one of the things that we've looked at is how much are students actually paying out of pocket? And I'll just tell folks, you know, what we call our metric is the price to earnings premium. It's something that you've probably heard in the stock market. And the thought process was if stock analysts can evaluate a stock, why can't college consumers evaluate the potential ROI that they might get after making one of the biggest investments of their life? And one of the things that we can look at is how much are they actually paying out of pocket? It's something in higher ed that we call net price, right? It's how much are students paying after all grants and scholarships are deducted. So it's their actual money that they're paying that can either be used through student debt, you can finance it through that, or you can actually use personal finances, but it's the money that you're paying year after year to obtain a credential. And the other thing that I wanted to look at is, okay, we also know that the number one reason year after year that students attend college, whether that be a career college or a more traditional college, whether you're studying to be a social worker uh, or a welder, is to get a good paying job that provides you for a financially secure future. Um, you know, the survey results just are consistently, this is the number one reason, um, whether we like it or agree with it or not, why folks are attending and enrolling in post-secondary education. We have data available that shows what's the actual earnings boost that they're getting, whether they're attending University of Georgia, you know, in comparison to someone who lives in the state of Georgia with that with a high school diploma, but no college experience, are they actually getting a boost by attending this specific institution? And now we even have more data to say, if I'm studying social worker engineering at University of Georgia, how much are students making then? So you can actually see this and compare this to someone who has a high school diploma, but no college experience whatsoever. So I consider that an earnings premium. So just to give you a short example of how this may work um, in a hypothetical situation, let's just say you, you spend $15,000 a year to attend University of Georgia out of pocket. 
you typically would take four years. We, we know it's a little bit longer. National Student Clearinghouse suggests about 5.1 years to get a bachelor's degree. But let's just say you pay four years out of pocket, $15,000 a year. It's going to cost you about $60,000 out of pocket to get that four-year degree. Sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, right? It's a huge investment. However, if you're getting an earnings boost, you can quickly make that back. So I actually use you know data to look at former University of Georgia students to say, okay, if they have a $20,000 earnings boost, they're making $20,000 more than someone in Georgia with only a high school diploma but no college experience. That's their earnings boost is $20,000 by attending that institution. If it costs them $60,000 to obtain that four-year diploma, they can use that $20,000 to recoup those costs within three years, right? It's $20,000 times three years. So it takes them, they, they already earning that earnings boost and anything after that is really an ROI that they'll be able to carry on with them for their lifetime. So that's sort of the, the, the essence of the price to earnings premium is figuring out how much a certain school or degree might cost relative to the earnings boost that it provides a student to calculate how long it's going to take them to recoup their costs. And you broke that down in a number of ways. One of the ways you broke it down was by sector, the public sector, the private nonprofit, and the for-profit sector. And when you first came out with this a few months back, a lot was made about your results relating to the for-profit sector. So I was wondering if you could talk about what what did you find with regard to return on investment for students attending for-profit schools? And first, I just want to say the overall finding of this is college is still worth it. We found that 63% of all institutions provide enough of an earnings boost to allow students to recoup their educational costs within five years or less, right? Very quickly. So that's encouraging. Um, you know, the verdict is still out, you know, in terms of generally obtaining a post-secondary degree. We also know that a heavy majority of jobs require some sort of post-secondary education nowadays. We did see differences in breakdown by sector, and some of them were disproportionately better, quote-unquote better or quote-unquote discouraging uh, more than the others. So just for example, one of the ways that we do our calculation is we do have a category called no ROI. And basically, we measure the earnings of students 10 years after they've enrolled in an institution. How much are you making 10 years after you've initially enrolled, whether that be a trade school or a community college or a four-year school? How much is your average student making, your typical student? And if they are making less than the average high school graduate in the state where their institution's located, we call that no ROI. Now, at public and private nonprofits, we saw that only 4% of public and private nonprofits led the majority of their students earning less than the average high school graduate 10 years after they've initially enrolled, right? That means that 96% of those schools are showing at least some sort of ROI for their students. But one thing that did pop out is that we also saw that there were 51% of for-profit institutions in our sample that left the majority of students still earning less than the average high school graduate in their state even 10 years after they've enrolled. So I think that that's, you know, a whopping number that sort of caught a lot of people's attention just because it did happen to be the majority of schools within that specific sector. And you mentioned in the narrative that goes along with your study that there is a argument that could be made with regard to cosmetology programs on unreported income. And our listeners are certainly familiar with that issue. It involves 
graduates of cosmetology schools not reporting tips and those types of earnings. So therefore, when the IRS or, or a researcher like Michael would look at their earnings data, it, it's actually underreported. And you mentioned in your study that uh, that is a legitimate public policy debate that occurs. There's also the discussion about cosmetologists needing to build a client base, taking some time after they graduate to, you know, they don't earn a lot in the beginning, but they, they build a client base and earn more later on. And leads me to ask, what, when you say 51% of for-profit schools have no ROI at any point, they never make up that money that was initially invested in their education. Do you have an idea approximately what percentage of those schools were cosmetology schools? So one of the things that we were able to break down was to actually look at programmatic data. Um, so we know that not every school, maybe more cosmetology schools than others, they offer multiple programs. But we actually have earnings on cosmetology schools themselves. So I did run the same analysis looking at 38,000 college programs to see how much students make relative to the cost that they pay. And what we saw is that within the for-profit sector, these are graduates of programs. So these are students that have graduated from a program, including cosmetology, but also other programs. Uh, but within the for-profit sector itself, we saw that 46% of all for-profit programs, including cosmetology, left the majority of their graduates still earning less than someone that has no college experience whatsoever. These are two, it's, we're limited to two years after they graduated uh, from a cosmetology program or any other program, right? So they are in the beginning of their career. But what is this sort of answer? You know, it's, it sort of answers, these are students that have done everything right, They've paid their tuition. They've got their credential. Now they've entered the workforce. We do know that the number one reason, whether you be a cosmetologist or a social worker or an engineer, is to obtain you know, a good paying job that's going to allow you to pay down your loans and have a financially secure future. So it does raise some flags specifically for this profession. We also looked at just all kinds of programs and kind of grouped them together. And what we saw is that actually 97% I believe of cosmetology programs left the majority of their graduates earning below this minimum economic threshold. To your point, um, there have been some regulations through the Department of Education that actually ties federal funding to say if schools aren't performing, if they're leaving students with too much debt and too little earnings, maybe they shouldn't be receiving federal loans and grants. And the cosmetology associations have sued the department in the past. And one of the main arguments that they made to your point was that this is a, this is a profession to where there's typically paid in cash and there's underreported income. So they actually made this argument to the Department of Education. And I thought that it's something that needed to be acknowledged within the report. And it was actually under the DeVos administration. And she argued back against them to say that there's really no widespread evidence at this point that this specific profession underreports more than any other profession. So that was sort of the depart the, the argument that the department made under the Trump administration. And there hasn't been strong evidence rather than specific arguments that have come out of, you know, things that are funded by the, the cosmetology association since then. But I think it is an ongoing debate that we're still seeing as the department is thinking about future regulations and how to treat certain types of programs 
and the time frame uh, that they even measure what, where this income should come from, whether that be two years or three years or four years. So we're kind of still seeing that play out through the department. And I think it's something that we're going to continue to see play out over the next year or two. And I won't belabor the point about cosmetology because I, I, I do think it's widely accepted that there are ancillary factors that go into that. There's certainly differences of agreement on uh, of opinion on how much of a factor that plays in outside income, but you know, unreported income and again that ability over time to build your client base is important. So, what we did when we looked at your numbers, which your study is incredible, is we we took your data and we eliminated cosmetology programs from that data. And then we ran the numbers from everybody else. And what we found at that point was, if you look at ROI, your first category is within five years. Are you able to get a a return on your investment to pay back that money and, and make a positive income beyond that within five years? And what we found is on the for-profit side, 36% of the schools that remained in that data set were able to do that. Now, on the public sector, it was 56%. Within five years, 56% of public sector graduates get a positive return on their investment. For private nonprofits, it was 31%. So for-profits was 36 nonprofits was 31%. And I wonder, do, do those, I assume you probably ran these numbers as well. I mean, did, did that result surprise you? So I just looked at it in a little bit of a different way. And it's just, you looked at it in a very quick way. How quickly are graduates able to recoup their costs, which is the best case scenario. So I actually just did it like a quick run to look at, but what about the schools that have no ROI, right? We know that they're just heavily concentrated within this specific field. Um, you know, those are just the stats. We do know that they're also heavily concentrated cosmetology programs under the for-profit umbrella for whatever reason that may be. So I actually removed these programs and before removing them, I could see just at the programmatic level that we did see that 46% of all for-profit programs left the majority of their graduates still earning less than someone with no college experience. When you remove the cosmetology programs, which are just so plentiful within this specific sector, I saw that number go down from 46 to 33%. From a public policy standpoint, I think that it's it, it still presents a high risk of whether or not they're included um, in, in the data itself. I oftentimes put out data for objective reasons so that folks like yourself and other policymakers can use it to think about what's the appropriate way to approach this. And there's legitimate differences between different types of professions and when they may start earning more um, or earning less. And there's also questions in terms of the the, the training that goes into these programs. Um, so some folks have said, you know, there, there's extensive training and sometimes rightfully so uh, because they're dealing with complicated things in certain types of cosmetology. Uh, but there are other, you know, pieces of cosmetology programs that could possibly benefit from a shorter time frame, which would make the cost less. And it also just raises the question of, are we with any, any type of program, cosmetology imp- included, if we're preparing students for jobs that don't necessarily exist or that they don't pay as much as they should, that's sort of the, the interesting thing about the programmatic data that folks can use, whether at the institution level itself, if you're offering a number of different programs, you can see which ones are working really well and then which ones are just 
where you see more students struggling in terms of economic ROI, and you can make smart operational decisions, you know, that, that with actionable data to at least at the minimum dig deeper to figure out whether it's the program itself, whether it possibly it's the professors, or whether you're offering programs to where jobs don't necessarily exist within your geographic region. You know, we're starting to scratch the surface. We're going to get more years worth of data, but I do hear consistently that folks are interested from all different levels. They're using the data. They're just starting to understand that the data is even there. So I think that it's normalizing that the data is there. Before, if you if you don't know it's there, you can't use it. But they're starting to see it and think, okay, operationally, how can I improve? How can I incorporate this into my strategic plan? Think about long-term outcomes just to help students succeed. Because I do generally believe that a lot of folks in the college industry are there to help students succeed. Um, so we have some more better and actionable data that can hopefully help do that. I wanted to close by talking about the next step in this process, because you've done something very interesting that also got a lot of national attention, where you looked at these numbers and you extrapolated them based upon the college rankings that we hear so much about. Everybody follows the U.S. News rankings every year and other publications that do that, and parents and students rely on that when they make their decision. And you looked at social mobility as part of the ranking system, and you applied some of the data that we're talking about and added some new factors. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that research came to be, what you found, and, and where, where you hope to go from here. So, you know, this, this has all been an evolution. As you start to do this and thinking about value, you see that there's different sort of metrics that you can dig into. And one of the things that I, and I think many others are interested in, is uh, are we providing students with mobility and how are institutions actually serving low and moderate income students, not just the more affluent students who get into the schools that top the U.S. news rankings every year. And it's the same schools, the same well-resourced schools that are sort of shuffled around. So I decided to run the price to earnings premium on low income students, which the department defines as students whose families make between zero and $30,000 a year. So really the you know lower income students, some of our most vulnerable students, and you can actually see how much they're paying, which is different than your average student, but you can also see how much they're making and use that earnings boost to also calculate this ROI. How much are they paying for a credential relative to how much are they making? That's obviously going to be different than an average or higher income student. And I wanted to see where are low income students getting the best ROI. So I ran these numbers and uh, I was super excited about this project. And what did I find where students were getting the best ROI? It happened to be places like Harvard, Stanford, Duke, University of Chicago. So I basically recreated the, the U.S. news rankings again. And I'm like, great job, Mike. You just mimicked the U.S. news rankings. And I was something that I was really excited about. But then I started to look at the percentage of lower income students and proportion that they actually enroll every year. And if you are, you know, gifted and lucky enough to get in some of these schools, you are going to do very well. You are going to have the best ROI. But if you're also gifted enough to get into these schools, you're probably going to do very well and succeed in many, many other colleges. So I noticed these low proportion of Pell Grant recipients at these top ROI schools for low-income students. And I thought, you know, what's the purpose of 
higher education and even rankings? Is it to just reproduce the same well-resourced schools year after year? Or is it actually to leave the this generation better off than the previous generation? And I always thought that that was sort of, you know, what we, a lot of us think is the purpose to ultimately lift folks up rather than just reproduce the same, you know, affluent folks in the same very well, highly exclusive rather than inclusive schools. So I decided to take this this index of, of this ROI for low-income students, look at the proportion of Pell Grant students that each of them enroll, and create an index by multiplying those numbers. And what happened, you know, is while Harvard was ranked number four on the best ROI for low-income students, in terms of economic mobility, they went from number four to number 847, right? You had number you had University of Chicago, who if you get in there, you are going to do great. They're ranked number eight in terms of ROI for low-income students. But when you take the percentage of low and moderate income students into account, they drop from number eight to number 860. And who are the schools that sort of rose up and shown themselves as strong engines of socioeconomic mobility? It happened to be, you know, the top 10 schools in this index happened to be all Hispanic serving institutions that were specifically located in New York, California, and Texas. They're often very affordable institutions like CUNY and Cal State and, and, and Texas Rio Grande. They provide a very affordable education for lower income students, but they enroll a tremendous amount, all over 50%, and they help them succeed economically. So these are some of the things that we're seeing, and they're highlighting schools to where If you know these schools, you know that they've been doing the work and delivering on the promise, but now we have the data to sort of show that. Um, One of the other things that I'll just mention is HBCUs also jumped up in term uh, on these lists in terms of economic mobility. These are traditionally under-resourced institutions that serve a very high percentage of students of color, and they've been under-resourced and having to use their their, their money as effectively and efficiently as possible. They're usually never, you know, highlighted on U.S. news rankings or pretty much any ranking that folks are looking at. But when you take it in terms of economic mobility and how well, you know, the proportion of lower income students that they're enrolling and how well they're serving them, we notice that seven of these HBCUs popped up to the top hundred, which is just something I've never seen. So I'm starting to hear from lots of folks that know that these schools are doing the work. And it's really encouraging just to see them highlighted as great opportunities for students across the nation that are really delivering on the promise and helping a lot of students succeed. This has been a fascinating discussion. And for anyone that's interested in what we've talked about, I, I would encourage you to go to Third Way's website or, or visit Michael's social media accounts. And, and you can learn a lot more. And you, if you get into this data, you could spend a lot of time sorting it and searching it and thinking about you know, your own perspective on things. But Michael, uh, we're grateful for you being here today. Uh, Really appreciate your time. Michael is a senior fellow for higher education at Third Way. Michael Itzquitz, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Career Education Report. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at career.org and follow us on Twitter at CQED. That's at C-E-C-U-E-D. Thank you for listening.